The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Hi, Amy and listeners. Today's case is a unique one, I think you'll find. I picked it because I think it opens up some great discussions about juvenile offenders, sealed records, and the potential controversies surrounding how society views perpetrators years after their convictions. And Amy, I know this is a topic that interests you. But before we unpack some of these complicated issues, let's talk a little bit about the university at the center of this episode's controversy, Harvard. As I'm sure many of our listeners know, Harvard is considered one of the most prestigious universities in the United States. And it's also one of the oldest, holding the title of First College of the American Colonies. Located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, The college began in 1636 as one acre of land and one house. But like many of the universities we discuss, Harvard grew steadily through the years, adding a medical school in 1783, the Harvard Observatory in 1839, a business school in 1908, as well as several new majors in both the undergraduate and graduate levels in the 20th century. While the first graduating class in 1642 had nine students, today Harvard has over 21,000 students annually with hundreds of majors and programs, and it hosts some of the most elite students in the world. Interestingly, Amy, several of our American presidents were Harvard graduates. I'm sure you already knew that. They include John Adams, Theodore Roosevelt, FDR, JFK, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. Other notable graduates include Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Conan O'Brien, that one I didn't know, Mark Zuckerberg, Natalie Portman, Matt Damon, and Michelle Obama. Not to mention that over 50 faculty at Harvard hold Nobel Prizes for their research and publications. Now, getting into Harvard is notoriously difficult, with only a 3% chance of admission for the first-year students, which makes it one of the most competitive admissions processes 
in the world. So you can imagine that when an orphan teenager named Gina Grant received her early acceptance letter in 1995, she was absolutely ecstatic. But Gina would meet up with some roadblocks on the way to her dream. We'll get to what those were, but first, let's meet Gina. Born in 1976, Gina Grant was the daughter of Charles and Dorothy Grant. Now, some reports say that she was an only child, while others say that she had a sister who was nine years older. So it's not clear if perhaps this sister was not her biological sister or if there was just a discrepancy in the reporting. But for our purposes today, we're going to say that Gina did have an older sister who will become important later. The family resided in Lexington, South Carolina, a small town described as fairly affluent, heavily white, very Republican, and very law and order. So I'd surmise that this town probably had a low crime rate. While there wasn't much information, Amy, about Gina's early life, it was known that Gina had a very close and special relationship with her father, Charles. And Charles knew that Gina was smart from a very young age. And his dream for his younger daughter was that she would someday go to Harvard University. Obviously, this is a very lofty goal, but Gina was driven and intelligent, and she believed in her dad's dream, and it became her own. She wanted very much to go to Harvard. Unfortunately, Charles passed away from lung cancer in 1987 when Gina was just 11 years old. And though her mother, Dorothy, had a good job and was able to financially support her daughters, the grief that followed Charles' death allegedly led Dorothy to become an alcoholic. Though Dorothy would remarry just two years after her husband's death, the new marriage didn't seem to assuage her alcohol abuse. However, despite this tragedy and having a mother who was abusing alcohol, Gina still seemed to thrive and she was described by many neighbors as, quote, the nicest teenager. It sounds like Gina's mother had a lot of trouble dealing with the tremendous loss. What about Gina? Was she struggling in school now or how was she handling things? By all accounts, she was doing very well. She was described as upbeat. Um, she was an honor student, Amy, a rising star on her high school tennis team, a cheerleader. She was very well-rounded by all accounts. So the town was incredibly shocked when Gina Grant became the epicenter of a brutal murder case. On the night of September 13, 1990, Gina's older sister, Dana, had come home from her job as a nurse to find both doors of the family's two-story colonial home locked. Now, Dana knew that Dorothy and 14-year-old Gina were at home, and Dana became terrified when she used her key to enter the front door and felt someone shove it closed and put weight against it from the inside. I'm confused. It sounds like the sister is an integral part of this story, but people, some sources say she doesn't have a sister. Do some people think maybe um, this was a close family friend and they weren't biologically No, related? I just think when, when I researched it, early reports didn't describe, you know, the typical she was born, she had an older sister. Um, her sister wasn't referenced in her early life. The person who came into the home, though, was described as her sister? That's correct. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Um, okay, so Dana was very concerned that someone was pushing her out from the inside of this home. 
So she ran down the street to a local payphone because this was prior to cell phones um, to report what she thought was a possible burglary to 911. Um, a local deputy answered the call, and when he got to the Grant's home, he found Gina sitting on the front stoop in what he noted was a clearly agitated state. So he asked her what was going on, and Gina explained that she'd gotten into a fight with her mother, Dorothy, and her mother might be hurt. But when the deputy went inside, it was clear that it was more than a fight that had taken place. Um, you haven't mentioned anything, but did these two have history of a tumultuous relationship? Yeah, you're going to. We're going to discuss that a little bit later. Um, there definitely are accounts, um, mostly from Gina, though, that her mom became you know different when she was drinking, and and their relationship changed when her mother started drinking so much. So what this officer observed was that there was a large quantity of blood smeared on the floor of the foyer. And as the deputy went into the dining room, he found Dorothy with a kitchen knife stuck in her throat and her fingers curled around the handle. Her face was covered in lacerations and further investigation of the house showed blood had been spattered on the walls and the cabinets of the kitchen. The case, the lead detective on the case, John Phillips, would later describe the scene as, quote, one of the most violent and vicious homicides he'd ever seen in his career. Now, Dorothy had this, uh, remember, Dorothy was married. Her new husband had been away on a work trip the night of the 13th, and Dana had been working her shift at the local medical center, so investigators were quickly able to substantiate their alibis and rule them out as suspects. Gina was, in fact, the only person home with Dorothy, and so she was the only viable suspect at the time. Now, Gina initially told the police that her mother had tried to stab her with a knife in a drunken rage at the top of the staircase, and Gina had pushed her to get away. But Detective Phillips did not believe this story. It was clear from the fatal wounds on Dorothy's head that she had not died by falling down a carpeted stairwell. Okay, so at this point, Gina was brought to police headquarters for questioning while investigators searched the house for evidence. And of course, an autopsy was performed on Dorothy. The autopsy revealed that Dorothy had been beaten about the head with a blunt object and hit over 13 times. Sounds like a crime of passion. Indeed, it does. So... The largest blow was to the back of her head and came down at an angle that suggested that she had been seated with her back to the attacker. So this did not look good. The angle, and of course, for self-defense, it doesn't look good to hit someone from behind as well. Nope. But the bigger problem, Amy, was the knife. The knife in her throat had been embedded into a vertebrae. This might sound like a bit of a stretch, but is it possible she did this to herself? I mean, it sounds like a bit of a stretch, but I think the police have to eliminate that. And we've certainly mm -hmm. seen cases where this has been suggested current day. But the angle of the knife or the penetration just did not fit with this theory of self-mutilation. Okay. So they were able to rule that out pretty quickly. Yes. And you know what else? There was no blood around the wound, which means that she had been stabbed post-mortem. Oh, that changes things also. Yes, it does. This was very clearly a murder. 
While the autopsy was being performed, detectives were searching for evidence at the scene. And in Gina's bedroom closet, they found a plastic bag that contained a blood-spattered jacket that belonged to Dorothy, as well as a lead crystal candlestick encrusted with blood and a pile of blood-soaked rags. Now, now, interestingly, the candlestick had actually been wiped clean of fingerprints. But this evidence was all stashed in her closet. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Okay, Gina was interviewed over the course of several hours the night of September 13th. And as each new piece of evidence was revealed to her, her story changed. Now, she continued to assert that her mother had been physically abusive when she was drunk, and this never changed. And the Mm -hmm. autopsy, Amy, did confirm that Dorothy had a very high blood alcohol level at the time of her death. I don't recall what the number was, but it was substantially higher than just a couple of drinks. Okay, but that still doesn't, I don't see how her mother being abused, because she's trying to say it was self-defense still? Yes, she's trying to say that her mother, when she drank, and she drank a lot, was violent um, when she Yeah, but what about that particular day? It doesn't matter how she normally acts when she drinks. Is she saying that particular day? Well, yeah, she she is. And I, I think it does matter how she normally acts when she's drinking, but... Because you can establish a pattern. You know, if you can verify a pattern, then it would make sense. But I don't know that a pattern was verified. And I have to tell you, there were no reports of any wounds on Gina, whether defensive or offensive. Any other people say, what about the other sister and the husband? Did they talk about her having problems drinking or being violent? No, they didn't. They did. Yes, they said she had a drinking problem, but they did not report violence in association with it. Okay. Um, Also, I guess... You know, maybe Gina's claim was she was the one who was at home with her mother most of the time. Her sister was working. Her um, ste- her father or stepfather also had a job out of the home. So perhaps this was the dynamic between the two. I mean, I-, I will say one of Gina's friends went on the record to say that Dorothy was an alcoholic, but she was functional. The friend said that she didn't think Dorothy was the best mother. She didn't cook or clean per se. The friend said that she didn't feel that Dorothy maybe provided the best care for Gina. I I don't know. I don't think she witnessed anything, but she did say that Gina had confided to her prior to the murder that her mom was out of control um, and that she went into rages and that she was afraid her mother was going to kill her. So this was prior um, to the act itself. But the rest of Gina's story evolved dramatically over the course of the investigation. Um, Megan, how does she explain the knife? How does she explain that if her mother fell down the stairs, how would she get the knife in her throat? Okay, well, this one she said, Gina changed her story to say that her mother had stabbed herself in the neck before before falling hmm. down the stairs. Um, now we know this is already not true, and so did detectives. 
When the police showed her the evidence found in her closet, Gina added that she had picked up the candlestick off a side table in their scuffle at the top of the stairs and bumped her mother on the head at some point. Again, this did not fit also with the blood spatter patterns in the house. So none of the information she's giving is really fitting. Despite these ever-evolving stories, what did become clear to detectives through these interviews was that a major source of contention between Gina and her mother was Gina's older boyfriend, a junior varsity football player named Jack Hook. Oh, this is new information. Okay. Exactly. What's this guy about? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Jack had a criminal record for petty theft and vandalism. And though he was only two years older than Gina, they began dating when she was 13 and he, and he was 15, which did not please her mother, Dorothy. Um, Dorothy had demanded that Gina stay away from Jack, but Gina disregarded her mother's demands and continued to see her boyfriend regularly. Not only that, but Gina had actually been sneaking Jack into her bedroom on a fairly frequent basis for over a month before the murder. Now, it's unclear if Dorothy had found out that her daughter was sleeping with Jack the night she was killed, but police but police noticed that most of the abuse Gina claimed her mother perpetrated on her revolved around her relationship with Jack. This is a familiar story. This is a familiar story, yes. In fact, only weeks before the murder, Gina had actually stayed out all night with Jack. And when her mother found out, Gina made up an elaborate story about how she'd been kidnapped by a tall, smelly man who shoved her into, I'm not kidding, who shoved her into a beat-up Toyota and drove her around all night. Interestingly, Amy, Gina did file a police report about the kidnapping, but a few days later admitted that she had concocted this story to get out of trouble with her mom. Okay, so this is, things are not looking great for her as we're finding out more and more. No, based on her past lies, a false police report, police were very suspicious of Gina. I mean, even before the evidence started to mount, it seems like they had a lot of negative information Mm -hmm. about Gina. Yeah, it doesn't make her a murderer. No, but it doesn't look good. With the physical evidence in hand, investigators felt they had enough to charge her. And only seven hours after finding Dorothy's body on the dining room floor, Gina Grant was charged with the murder of her mother. Uh, Megan, I we need to stop and talk about the fact she's 14, right? That's correct. Okay, so in what state is she in again? South Carolina. Okay, so in South Carolina, um, they can try a 14-year-old She could be tried as, as an, adult? an adult or a juvenile, so we're not there yet, but it's okay. a fair question. Gotcha. The other okay. question at this point is, did she act alone, or is it possible that her boyfriend was also at the house that night or in some way involved? Well, where was he that night? This is simple, right? Does he have an alibi or what? All right, well... You know, Jack did have a criminal record, but for petty stuff. So the police were suspicious and they did go to his home to question him, which seems like the right move. During the interview, Jack swore he had not been at Gina's house on the night of September 13th. He claimed that he'd spoken to Gina on the phone and heard her mother ranting drunkenly in the background. But that was all. He was on the phone and he had stayed home all night. Regardless, his fingerprints were taken. And would you believe that they were a match for the knife handle? 
Well, that could be, I'm sure that can be explained away in some ways if he was frequently at that home. Which is exactly what he said when he was brought in for questioning. He said, look, I'm at Gina's house all the time, so of course my fingerprints are going to be found on things there. He even claimed, I think this maybe he went a step too far with this, but that he'd use that particular knife to practice knife throwing in Gina's backyard. I think this is where his story probably started to crumble for detectives. They thought that story was well, also a stretch. Well if, well, if they did knife throwing, then were his fingerprints on other knives in the house as well? I don't know. Um, they were on that one, but either way, I think it. Either way, I think it sounds a little far fetched. I think so as well. Um, by the standards of 1990, though, the fingerprint match was enough to charge Jack Hook with accessory to murder, so he was charged as well. Uh, both Gina and Jack were housed in juvenile detention at the time, and investigators began to put together a case for a possible trial. Now, about a month later, on October 17th, Gina contacted investigators to tell them that she wanted to make a new statement on the record. Mm, I have a feeling I know what's happening. She's going to throw him under the bus. So smart, Amy. In (laughs) fact, Gina did say that it was Jack Hook who had murdered her mother and not her. So here's what her new statement claimed. Jack had come over on the night of September 13th while Gina and her mother were having a verbal fight in the kitchen. Gina claimed her mother grabbed a knife and held it to Gina's face. She said that while she was trying to get away from her mother, she saw Jack go into the living room and come back with something crystal-like that he raised above her mother's head. Is that the candlestick? Yes. She says that Jack hit her mother one time in the back of the head and then Gina was able to get away from the knife. As she turned away and leaning against the kitchen counter, Gina said she could hear Jack hitting her mother again and again, but she did not look up until he'd stopped. At this point, she saw him standing over her mother's body, shaking and repeating, oh my God, oh my God. All right, so what does Jack have to say? Well, before we get there, detectives asked Gina how the knife played into this scenario. And she replied, I guess he stabbed her. Okay. When further pressed why she hadn't told the story the night of the murder, she said that her lawyer told her that she'd go to jail if she confessed all these details. And when detectives asked her what she would say if Jack denied her story, her reply was, quote, You just have to decide who to believe, I guess. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) With a record of those lies so far, I don't I don't really know that she's the most credible um, witness here. Mm -mm. Um, Amy, one of the things that's very interesting about Gina's confession is that prior to giving this statement, Gina frequently called Jack's mother from jail. Um. Why? Uh, Apparently, Gina wanted to let Jack's mom know that he was innocent and that she was sorry that he had gotten caught up in this. She felt bad. And these are obviously these are obviously recorded. Yes, they're recorded, although I'm not sure, as we have seen, we're not sure that people realize these recordings at the time they're making these calls. I mean, I will say that also um, (coughs) Jack's mother was smart enough to begin recording these calls herself. 
So uh, it is kind of interesting that she said that, you know, he was innocent. At one point, she claims even that there was a stranger who entered the home and killed her mother. There are many, many stories. Through all of these phone calls, Jack's mother urged Gina to just tell the truth. She said, okay, if, if Jack has something to do with it, tell the truth and come clean about it and we'll figure this out. But Gina continued to vacillate for months and Jack himself never confessed anything to the police to either corroborate or deny Gina's testimony. Did he? So he never denied it? No, he never spoke to the police. Never. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, did his did he have an alibi? I know you said what it was, but did it did he have any alibi witnesses? Um, he had said that he was at home and I guess maybe his mother, I, I can't recall exactly, but maybe his mother thought he was at home. I don't know that it was the strongest alibi. I don't believe his mother was lying for him. I think it was one of those situations where she probably believed he was at home, but this couldn't have been the strongest alibi either. So what happens in this case? Well, by January of 1991, it became clear that neither Jack or Gina was going to give a true confession of the events of September 13th. And so Gina's lawyer suggested to her that she should take the plea offered by the prosecution. So there was a plea. Get this. She pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter in return for the prosecution dropping the murder charge. So just so uh, listeners know, no contest um, simply means that she's not contesting the charges. She's not admitting to anything, but she's basically saying, okay, there's evidence enough to possibly show that I was involved. You said the prosecution would drop the charges. That was part of it? Drop the murder charge down to voluntary manslaughter. Oh, gotcha. Not drop altogether. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Jack was also offered the same deal, just so you know. Plead no contest to voluntary manslaughter, and they would drop the murder charge. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Okay, so with them both accepting the plea deals, they were sentenced, each of them, to one year in a youth correctional facility. And Gina would also receive probation until her 18th birthday. No way. Yes, absolutely. We can discuss our feelings about okay. this sentence later on, but I was very, okay. very surprised as well. Did she have a really good attorney? Did her family know the... You know, people involved in the court proceedings. What is going on? I mean, obviously, they had pretty good attorneys. I think also what happened is they were going to realize that at trial, they were going to both point the finger at each other. So it would come down to who the jury would believe and whether, you know, anyone would get off completely. At this point, it seemed like Gina's dreams of attending Harvard would never happen, right? Um, but Amy, that's not exactly the case, because only nine months after her sentencing to the youth corrections facility, the trial judge agreed to transfer Gina from a juvenile hall to a Boston residential school for emotionally problematic children. 
Now, this was due to the fact that Gina had an aunt and an uncle who lived in Boston who would become her legal guardians and offer her a loving home after she'd finished her time in residential school. That family was not on her mother's side. I'm assuming it was. It was on, on her, her mother. It was the brother of her mother. So yes, on their mother's side. So maybe people did believe her or realize that her mother, or suspected that her mother did have some involvement. We can't be sure. Um. So Gina went, and as far as South Carolina's judge and the prosecution knew, Gina was getting the care and rehabilitation she needed at the school in Massachusetts. But here's where the story gets a little muddy. Some sources say Gina spent only a matter of weeks at this rehabilitation school before moving in with her aunt and uncle and enrolling in the Cambridge Ridge and Latin High School. Other sources suggest Gina spent a lot of time in rehabilitation. Now, I'm not really sure. This rehab might have been on her own personal therapy. I couldn't find specifics. This is an older case and not all the details were available. Regardless, though, Amy, her high school grades were so exemplary that she was able to apply to Harvard. And she was accepted under their early admissions decision in the winter of 1995. Did she have to disclose her record or no since she was youth? Hold that thought. It's a great question. It becomes very, very important. Um, just as a note, too, Harvard only offers early admissions decisions to their most exemplary prospective students, so this means that she would have been in the top 5% of their decisions. Wow. So it seemed like everything was working out in Gina's favor here. That is until, however, in April of 1995, when she was featured in an article in the Boston Globe about exceptional teenagers. This article caught a lot of attention. And, and Gina had told the Globe that she was an orphan who'd been on her own since the age of 16. So that might have been true. Some sources do say that she lived with her aunt and uncle for a short time before moving out on her own. Um, she claimed she'd been able to support herself um, with a small family trust fund, as well as teaching biology to underprivileged kids. She seemed independent, driven, and had beaten all the odds and was so happy to be living her dream of going to Harvard. This article went national, and Gina's name caught the attention of a lot of people in her hometown of Lexington, South Carolina, I would say, unfortunately, for her. Because after this Globe article went live, both the Globe and Harvard admissions received anonymous packets in the mail filled with newspaper clippings about the Dorothy Grant homicide in South Carolina, with Gina Grant named as the convicted felon. What do you think? How do you think this is going to look for her Harvard admissions? Probably not great. What year was this again? I'm sorry. Um, this was in the mid 1990s. OK, so if it happened today, I think we've come a long way with understanding, um, you know, things people have done in the past. They can change and they can, you know, there's redemption. Mm -hmm. But at this time, I would imagine that this would not be good for her. Yes, that would be correct, because three days after they received this information, the Harvard Admissions Committee met and decided to rescind Gina's admittance to the school. Now, the letter Gina received did not explicitly say she was being declined due to the murder charges. Rather, it was a form letter with generic reasons for rescinded admissions. Uh, just so you know, Gina contacted a lawyer to get a more specific answer. Harvard replied, because there wasn't much information, that early admissions can be withdrawn in cases where students fail to maintain excellent grades 
are found of having lied on their application or misrepresent themselves on their application. So did this they have, is where they're going. Did they have a line item that asked if you had ever been convicted yes. of a crime? One part of the application specifically asked whether students had ever been put on probation or disciplined by the legal system. Okay, so she lied. That's correct. Gina, okay, so, Gina did okay. not disclose that she had been on parole for her mother's murder. Okay, so I think that she is in the wrong there because that's a clear, that's that's a very clear policy that you can't lie, and yes. she lied. Yes. Whether or not you agree with whether that should matter, whether that should be asked on an application, that's a whole other story. It's a clear violation. She also told um, the admissions committee that her mother had died in an accident, not that she'd been murdered. So this was another big lie. Remember they said misrepresentation misrepresenting yourself. Mm -hmm. But the problem here was that Gina had committed her crime as a juvenile and therefore her official record was sealed. We've talked about sealed records before. Uh, A lot of juveniles will have their records sealed for reasons like this to prevent their crimes committed as children from impacting their entire careers. Now, whether or not you agree with that, I I do actually agree in most cases with sealing juvenile records. That's not to say all. I don't throw a blanket on all that. I think there are situations where these records should be unsealed. Okay, Um, Gina's lawyer countered Harvard by reminding them that because Gina had been under the had been under 18 at the time of her conviction, she was not obligated to disclose past infractions that happened while she was a juvenile on this application. For this, the lawyer urged Harvard to reconsider their decision and admit Gina. But Harvard remained steady in its decision to rescind her acceptance. And as the media storm began to to swirl, two of the other schools Gina had applied to, Columbia and Barnard, also rescinded her early acceptances to them. Mm, This is complicated. Very complicated. That's why I chose it. Gina found herself at the forefront of media coverage again as several news outlets picked up the story of Harvard's decision as well as rehashing the details of Gina's murder trial. But this time, Gina had a lot of allies. For many, Gina's story was a testament to the success of juvenile rehabilitation. And this girl, this girl had committed a heinous crime, but she'd served her punishment, done her parole and had turned her life into Such a success that she'd been admitted to one of the most prestigious universities in the world. So if she had served her time, what was the problem with her going to Harvard? Others latched on to the fact that Gina's mother had been an alcoholic and that there was a high probability Gina had not killed premeditatively, but in self-defense. Even Harvard's own student newspaper, The Crimson, disagreed with the school's decision citing the admissions board as, quote, the latest victimizer of Gina Grant. I just want to read a quote from their 1995 article, what, which was titled Admit Gina Grant to show the controversy. They were, they were quite ahead of their time, these students. It's pretty impressive. Students and some of the faculty. And the faculty. Okay, okay. let's hear it. So this quote reads, this is a university that consistently puts its own reputation above doing the right thing. In this case, Harvard's institutional obsession with protecting its reputation may backfire. With the university refusing to provide any further information, this story makes Harvard look equal parts elitist and heartless. Consider, 
Grant would not be, as some students around campus have worried, a danger to classmates and roommates. In a skillfully reported story by the Crimson Sewell Chan, Dr. Harold C. Morgan, who examined Grant in South Carolina, indicated that her extraordinarily violent act was the result not of any mental instability, but living in a, but of living in a stressful, abusive household. Cambridge, Ridge, and Latin, that was her high school, has also made it clear that Grant does not pose a, j- a danger to other students. The whole article can be read online, and we have a link in our show notes if listeners would like to know more. I'm assuming that um, she didn't commit any additional crimes after that. Well, you'll have to wait. You're not you're not we're not there yet. Oh, okay. And now a brief word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Several of the psychologists who'd worked with Gina after the murder told the press that, quote, Harvard was unjustified if they rejected Grant for fear of future homicidal acts. That homicide occurred in special circumstances and she is not likely to kill again. Even the judge who had sentenced her in 1990 spoke out on her behalf, saying that this is a very bright and talented young woman. But every time her life started to take off and go in the right direction, somebody was throwing a roadblock at her. I would imagine there's a whole other side of people who are not so sympathetic. Yes, um, definitely. Uh, As many advocates as Gina found, there were also those who doubted her rehabilitation. Some felt she'd served an incredibly light sentence for such brutal matricide. In essence, Amy, she'd served less than two years in jail between waiting for her trial and her actual sentence. And in her four years of parole, she essentially led a normal life in the community, going to school, working. It didn't seem that she was under many restrictions. Now, I would have to agree, regardless of your um, take on, regardless of your position on whether she should go to Harvard, I think the sentence was inappropriate for a murder. I do believe if they were going to sentence her as a juvenile, it should have been for the full term um, until she was 18 or 21 years old. Your thoughts on Mm -hmm. that? I agree with that. Without without having proof of the abuse and without there being more evidence of self-defense, I would have to agree. Yes. And there was an additional concern that the justice workers who dealt with her case said that Gina had never shown any remorse for what she had done, regardless of whose fault it was. The chairwoman of South South Carolina's Juvenile Parole Board, Marlene McLean, told the press, quote, we were always concerned that she never seemed to fully accept responsibility for what was a very violent crime. And one of the psychiatrists who'd worked with her while incarcerated state, quote, it was never a question about her mind. It was a question about what was in her heart. So the fact that Harvard had rescinded her acceptance after getting the anonymous newspaper clippings only proved to those who already felt she was not remorseful that she had not actually been rehabilitated. They looked at it a different way. 
Now, this controversy, as you said, this is complicated, right, Amy? It proved to be a mess for Harvard, as many parents called the school looking to remove their dis- their remove their students based on Harvard's decision. But get this, Harvard was in a terrible place either way because some who were in the pro-Gina camp said they take their student out if Gina was not admitted. And then in the in the you know in the camp of they didn't want Gina there they said they'd remove their kids if Gina was admitted i would assume that the legal counsel for harvard was steadfast that they not allow her in because if there were gaffer if gaffer bit there was another violent act then that lawsuit would not not obviously only the lawsuit the loss of life but you know the legal team has to consider that absolutely And I think that's fair. Um, One thing we didn't discuss was predictions of dangerousness. Uh, There are predict, we're no better. We've talked about predictions of dangerousness by clinical clinical professionals, usually kind of a 50-50 still. Um, And so even though there was predictions that Gina would not commit this type of violence, I don't see how that's completely possible without knowing all the facts of the reasons why. If this is a situation where she became very angry at a stressful time um, with a decision that her mother made, you know, possibly pertaining to the boyfriend. I don't know that to be true, but if that's the case and she snapped um, or, you know, in the heat of passion, attacked her mother, I don't think that that means that she necessarily would not commit another violent crime. Um, again, without that information, it would be very, very hard, I think, to accurately predict her true danger. So how would all this pressure and media pressure affect Harvard's decision? Well, in the end, they did not change their minds. In fact, Harvard did not accept Gina Grant. According to a former awards coordinator from Harvard, while the admissions department did carefully reconsider their decision, they ultimately decided not to accept Gina. Though they claimed it was not about the fact that Gina had been convicted of manslaughter, It was more that she had fabricated a story about her mother's death instead of being a little bit more honest and saying something about her mother's death, let's say, being closed by court order or not able to Mm -hmm. discuss this. Her reconsideration was along the lines of, in light of knowing Gina had fabricated a story, was she still a better applicant than the first person on the waiting list? Ultimately, Harvard decided that no, Gina was not, Gina Grant was not better than the person behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, as, I, as far as I could find, Gina did not pursue further legal action against Harvard for this decision. Now, one of the big questions comes down to, did Harvard have the right to make this choice? Well, yes, they did. They absolutely did, Amy. You're right. Harvard, by the way, is a private institution, meaning they can accept or deny whomever they choose. Admission is completely at their discretion. But was this the end for Gina? No, not exactly. Two universities were still very happy to accept her, and she ended up attending Tufts University, which, as you know, is still a very prestigious institution. Of Gina's acceptance, Tufts spokeswoman at the time, Rosemarie Van Camp, told the press... Having paid her debts to society, she should not be denied the opportunity of pursuing a college degree. Any other decision would have been antithetical to our fundamental values and beliefs. So they went on record hard supporting their decision to accept Gina. Although her acceptance was not without controversy there either. 
as their student newspaper papered the school with leaflets about the potential danger Gina Grant posed as a student at the school. I think that is awful. Well, they might say that it was possibly awareness, uh, but I do I agree. I, I do agree. It's discriminatory. That yeah, I don't like that. I do agree. And also setting her up for... You want to set failure. someone up for success, not failure, right? We mm -hmm. talk about the stigma that comes along with being mm -hmm. labeled. Okay. Well, even if they thought um, something was going to happen and thought they were warning the public, there were no recorded incidents during Gina's four years at Tufts. And although I tried to, although I tried very hard to find information on Gina post her graduation in 1999, I really couldn't find anything about her whereabouts or what she went on to pursue as an adult. She probably changed her name and wants to start all over. I would assume so. I wouldn't so. blame her. Yeah. Um, as of this podcast, Gina, that we know of, Gina has not been arrested or convicted of any other crimes. So what we can hope is that this means she really did receive rehabilitation and mental health care she needed through the justice system and that she was rehabilitated. From the absence of information about her, I think we can surmise that Gina is currently living a lawful and productive life out of the public eye. Megan, I have to tell you that I was going to cover this case for Women in Crime. You're kidding. And then I didn't. Because it's it's so perfect for Women in Crime because you know how much we love to grapple with these cases that you can kind of look at so many different sides of it, right? Absolutely. But then I, I, ended up stop, I ended up stopping writing about it because I knew it was a campus killings relevant Case. Well, I'm glad you let me cover this case on campus killings. I really enjoyed researching it. The topics I found so very interesting. And so thank you for letting me have this one, Amy. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campuskillings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.